So we're starting a brand new series this morning, as you can see from the screen. It's called One Another, Gospel Doctrine and Gospel Culture. We actually did a, this series probably four, maybe even five years ago. Uh, and so we're doing it again. Um, and here's the premise. Um, the, the Bible, particularly the New Testament, has a lot of things to say to us as to how we are to live with one another. That phrase, one another, comes up very frequently in Paul's letters, in basically all of the New Testament letters, uh, James and uh, uh, all of them, essentially. But Paul really hones in on this issue of one another. And, and so what we're going to look at over the next four weeks or so, four or five weeks, is what does the church actually look like and function like when it's following Jesus? When the gospel, the doctrines that we believe, become real and true to us, what kind of culture does that create? And we want to look at our, our gospel culture for the next few weeks. Uh, and I think it's just really an important and, and I think honestly a very timely subject because we've been so disconnected what, through, through one thing or another, mostly COVID, right? We all got shut, shut into our homes for 10 or so weeks at least, at least up here. Um, I know some of my friends in Michigan and Minnesota and some other places are, are even still dealing with this. Um, so we should count our blessings in some ways. Um, but, but nonetheless, we, we went through quite uh, a difficult season where we were just abruptly kind of torn from each other. And, uh, and now we're back, but like we're, sort of just, we're still just kind of limping along, aren't we? We're just sort of trying to figure out what's next. And it's, I feel like 2020 has just been a giant dumpster fire, right? And it's like, how much worse is it going to get before <laughs> January comes around? And uh, it's just hard to know, right? We kind of are living in this like almost eternal state of just anxiety, not knowing what's next. Um, And so while that's true, and we don't need to pretend that we're not having a terrible year because we we are, um, at the same time, we know that the truths of Jesus still ring out and are true in our lives. And it shouldn't change one bit about how we love each other, interact with each other, and, and live out the culture of the gospel. And so we're going we're gonna to take some time to do this. Um, and, and at the same time, acknowledging that we do have a lot of heaviness in our, in our church, a lot of heavy a weightiness in the world we live in. I, I'm thinking even now of, of, my, of my friend, an Acts 29 pastor uh, in Beirut. We have one Acts 29 church in Beirut. You probably heard there was an explosion there uh, this, earlier this week. Their church got completely demolished uh, in, this, in this explosion. And by the grace of God, it didn't happen on a Sunday because he showed us some video of their children's ministry area it was just rubble, just giant pieces of concrete where their kids would have been sitting. Um, so we can praise God for that in some way, but it's, it's just, a, there's a lot of hard things and it seems like 2020 just doesn't want to let go <laughs> and it wants to just be hard for people all over the world. So, um, let, but, but let's hone in and focus on what it means to be the church and what does it mean to be followers of Jesus together in this thing. And that's what we're going to look at. Okay, so uh, as we do, 
We're going to primarily hang out in Romans 12, but before we get to um, before we get to that, we've got a, we're going to read a little bit from John 15. So if you want to put a piece of paper in uh, Romans 12 or whatever and go to John 15. So um, here's what we're going to do. We're going to read the passage. I'll read one verse from Romans 12, and then we'll jump over to 15 of John. But here's the, here's the premise of our, of our passage today. Um, verse f- uh, 4 and 5. It says, Paul says, for as in one body, we have many members. So you have one body, but you have a lot of body parts, right? Your body is made up of lots of individual parts. And the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Or some translations just say of one another. So the idea here is that we are members of one another. And Paul's going to talk about what that means and how that plays out in our lives as we get through this passage. But here's the thing. We have to recognize before anything else that if we're going to be members of one another, we have to first talk about what it means to be members of Christ. Because he says, We are one body in Christ, right? In Christ, we're one body. So what does it mean to be in Christ, to be a part of his body? What does that mean? Like it's an analogy. The body's an analogy here, right? We're not literally all attached physically to Jesus in in some weird sense, but we are united to Christ and then that's what makes us united to each other. So we have to look at what it means to be in union with Jesus, and, and then we can really talk about what it means to be in union with one another. So if we, as we get to John 15, let's look at just two verses, verse 4 and 5. And these are where I want to just bring our attention for a few moments. And then we'll jump back to Romans. Here's what Jesus says. He's speaking to his disciples and he says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing." All right, so Jesus says, first of all, his first call in this, in verse four is, abide in me. What does that mean? Well, it means fundamentally that we are to be united to Jesus. To be united to Jesus. We are to be so connected to Christ that we get all of his life-giving grace and we produce fruit. And the analogy he uses to show us that is of a, of a vine and branches. He's using the analogy of a, a vineyard. And I don't know if he's walking in a vineyard with his disciples and he's showing them the, these vines and branches or if he's just recalling to them how this all works, right? But he says to them, a branch cannot bear fruit by itself, right? So you, you cut a, a branch off the vine, or off a tree. We, we have a lot of trees up here, right? We don't have a lot of 
grape vineyards up here, but we, we understand the concept, right? This, you cut the branch off of the, where the life is coming from, and that branch doesn't bear fruit. That branch can produce nothing without its connection to the vine. So you take that branch and you plop it into the ground by itself. It's not going to grow anything. It's going to wither and it's going to die. And Jesus is saying, so that is with us. If we are not connected to the life-giving grace of Jesus through this union with him, by faith, we trust him and he becomes in us. We become in him. We become united to Christ. And then we begin to bear fruit. And, and I really want to hone in particularly on this very last part of verse 5. These, are, these words are really haunting in some sense, but we need to hear them and we need to let them sink into our hearts. He says, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Did you hear that? Apart from him, we can do nothing. Here's what that means. He's not talking about your ability to like, you know, feed yourself or have a job. I mean, you don't have to be connected to Jesus to live a functioning human life, but you do have to be connected to Jesus if you're going to have any spiritual fruit produced in your life at all. And the Bible tells us what the fruit of the Spirit is. It tells us what kind of character qualities ought to be coming out of us and being demonstrated in us as we're connected to Jesus as the, as the branches to the vine. And that, that's, there's a list of them, right? We actually have them up on that back wall. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. These are the things that should be true in us as followers of Jesus. But Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. You can't be loving the way he wants you to be loving. You can't be joyful the way he wants you to be joyful. You, you can't be patient or kind or good or, or any of it if you don't have a relationship with Jesus and be connected to him by faith. So we believe in him. He is then assigning to us all the grace that we need to live. And that's what he means by apart from me, you can do nothing. When we, when we connect ourselves to him by faith, we are, we are united to him and we can begin to live the, the kind of life that Jesus calls us to live. We actually have the ability to do that, not in ourselves, not in our own strength, but in him. And that's what he means. And and so we we have to first hear this because nothing that we're about to see in Romans 12 is possible without first being united to Christ as branches are to the vine. And so when Jesus says that we should abide in him, what he means, just to give you a very basic understanding of this is to have a daily dependency on Christ for everything we have, need, and and are. To abide in Christ is to have a daily dependency on Christ for everything we have, everything we are, everything we need. There is nothing that you need 
as a believer in Jesus to live the life Jesus has called you to live that he won't supply for you as you ask it and as you are dependent on him. I know we don't want to believe that because we'd rather fill our heads with excuses, but the truth is everything we need for life and godliness is found in Christ and he freely gives it to us as we, as we ask. And now I, I've been listening to an audio book called uh, Abide in Christ by a guy named Andrew Murray who's been dead for a long time. And it's a little bit of a, a oldie, oldie English kind of read. He was a Scottish minister, I think. Uh, and so it's a little bit hard at times, but I, I'm just soaking this in. It's like a daily reading for like 31 days um, called Abide in Christ. I'd highly recommend it. I think I bought the audiobook um, from Apple for like two bucks or something. It was really, really a great deal. And it's just been ministering to my soul because it's just a daily reminder that in Jesus, we have everything we need. He wants us to abide in him. He wants to give us all of his grace so that we can live it out. Now, will we do that perfectly without stumbling? No, of course not. Andrew Murray's book is really clear on that, right? We, we, make, a, we make a mess of things as we don't walk in dependency on Christ. But, we, but as we do, as we continue to turn back to him again and again, we find that help that we need. And we find that everything he is all of the life and grace that comes from Jesus is ours. So as we've talked through that, I think we're ready now to turn back to Romans chapter 12. So again, we got to read all of this through the preface of apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. But with Jesus, in Jesus, united to Jesus, we can, we can do these things. And, and we can begin, as we fail, we can ask him for help to continue to grow in these areas. All right, so let's start in verse 3. And it says this, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. All right, so verse 3 begins with this really important thing. Um, he starts by saying, you want to be members of one another in a healthy way, in a fruitful way, in a way that's actually honoring to Jesus. Then it all starts with believing that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. And because of that, we can be humbled people. If we can do nothing apart from Jesus, then, then there's no room for us to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Right? Paul begins with that command. Don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. So that's describing and defining humility. Humility means that we look at ourselves with accuracy. And I think that that's important to note. Because humility is not about looking down on yourself. It's not about doing this woe is me thing, I'm just a worm or whatever. It's, it's looking at yourself in an accurate way with sober judgment, not more highly than you should and not more lowly than you should, but with accuracy. But if we're going to be healthy members of one another, then we have to be humble. 
We can't be humble without knowing that that flows from Jesus, right? Apart from me, you can do nothing. We have to be united in Christ to be humble, but it also means we got to look at ourselves accurately. And here's, so here just really practically, here's what that means. It's humbly, it's not humble to deny the ways that God has gifted you. We're going to talk all about spiritual gifts today. That's where the passage is going to take us. And his point is that we don't have to deny the ways we're gifted, right? It's like, that's a very, it's a, honestly, it's a very Midwestern thing, right? You always try to deflect any praise off yourself. It's how we are. It's like, how, you know, when you, when you talk with people from the West Coast or East Coast, they're very different people. They're really different. Um, they, but when you get to a Midwestern thing, it's like somebody might say, oh, that's a really nice shirt. What are you going to say? Oh, I got it for a great deal. I didn't spend much money on this. Right? That's how we are. We just want to deflect. We don't want to take compliments. We just want to deflect them away. And that's okay, fine, whatever. But we don't need to deny how God has wired us and gifted us to be. We don't need to look down on ourselves. However, we also can't make others feel inferior to us. So, there, so humility is kind of two, a two-way street. It's, it's looking at yourself accurately, knowing that you are a sinner in need of grace, but you are also in grace, in Christ, a gifted person who doesn't have anything to boast about uh, towards anybody else. So we, we've got this accurate view of ourselves as we walk in humility. And this is exactly where Paul goes. He, in, in, verse, uh, in 1 Corinthians 12, rather, we, we see Paul deal with this exact same issue He's talking about the exact same thing. It's just to a different local church. But he's saying this, essentially the same things. And, and he uses this analogy of the human body in 1 Corinthians 12 as he, as he does here in Romans 12. But here's what he says, starting in verse 14 through 22. I'll just read them for you. It says, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. And if the foot should say... Because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body. Well, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. If we were all a single member... Where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So this is the first part of being humble, right? It's not looking down on yourself, but acknowledging the ways Jesus has gifted you to the church. That, now, again, with the preface that apart from Jesus, I can do nothing, right? That's where humility flows from. So it's not about boasting in our abilities, but being grateful for them. And he uses, Paul uses this, this silly kind of analogy of your hands and your feet, your eyes and your ears. Like if they were talking to each other, and if they, if they do, get some help, please. Um, they don't, right? So he's, he's using this as kind of a, a, a way to get us to think about it. But he's saying, if your foot was to say, you know what, I'm not a hand. I can't do the things the hand can do. I'm not good at the things the hand's good at. I'm just worthless. I don't belong to the body. Well, that would be crazy, right? And you would think, no, no, no. 
I kind of need my feet. Like you have a part to play in this thing. And if you're gone, I'm in trouble, right? Same thing with your, your eye and your ear, right? If your ear is saying, hey, man, the eye can see stuff. I can't see stuff. I'm, I can't see stuff. I stink. I'm not part of this thing. Like that would be crazy because you need your ears. You need your eyes, right? You, this, this is the point Paul's making. Like we have a variety of gifts, and a variety of people in the church that are all meant to make up the body of Christ. But then keep reading. Look at verse 21 and 22. Here's the the other side of this. It says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem weaker are indispensable. So again, now here's the part where We're not denying our gifting, but we're also not belittling other people. Humility cannot belittle others. You can't say and and be like doing what Jesus wants you to do and say, we don't need that person here. We don't need that person's gifts. We don't need that person's abilities. We can't say that because Christ has brought them here to be a part of this local expression of his body and everyone is needed. Everyone has a part to play. Everyone has gifts to bring to the table if we're united in Christ and are walking with him, right? We, so, so we have to look at ourselves with humility, which means we don't deny how God's gifted us, but we don't belittle the people around us either. All right, so... That's, the, that's where he begins. Now let's look at verse 4 and 5. These are the verses we read at the top of this message. And it says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. All right, so super quick. We've already kind of seen this. We've already kind of touched on this. Um, what Here's what Paul's saying. God has graced the church. If you want to use grace in a verbal way, right, as a verb, he's graced the church with a variety of people and a variety of gifts. See, you you notice how God has given these people to the church. And, And we have a variety of people that God has brought here. You are here and maybe you're visiting and just checking it out. That's cool. But most of you are here. You're, this is your church. You consider this your church. And you're here not by accident, not by mistake, but because God somehow, some way saw fit to draw you here because you have a gift to bring to the church. And, and God has graced us with you. Honestly. You are, not an indis- you are not a dispensable person. You're an indispensable person. Now, God, of course, can take any of us out and he'll fill a need, right? If I got hit by a bus, this church can keep on keeping on. It doesn't need me here. I hope you want me here. I want to be here. I hope I don't get hit by a bus. But if I did, God would fill the need. He, he would, right? But but we're not here to just like jump ship and run away when things get hard. We see ourselves as a vital part of this church and everyone else as a vital part of this church. That's how God intends for it to be. So because he's brought you here, because he's gifted you, look at verse six. It says, having gifts that differ, notice this, 
according to the grace given to us. It is a grace that God gives a variety of gifts to the church. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Let us use them. So the word for grace comes from the Greek word that means essentially a gift, okay? can be translated gift. Grace is uh, kind of a, a theological word for a gift, a, a gift that you didn't pay for it, right? Because that's not a gift. You don't pay for gifts. You're given gifts. And so here, God is saying to you and to me that through his grace, he has given to his church a variety of people, a variety of gifts. So use the gift that God's given you. Use it. Don't waste it. Don't sit on it. Don't squander it. Use the gift that God has given you. This is what it means to be a member of one another. Everybody plays their part. Everyone does what God has wired them to do in such a way. Now, again, imperfectly, right? But we do what we're gifted to do so that the church matures and grows and, in, and increases in maturity and in, and in uh, fruit from, from the Spirit, bringing more people to faith. And, and as we walk through these gifts, Paul's going to spend the rest of these last couple of verses just giving us a list of gifts, giving us a list of examples of how God has graced the church. Um, I hope that if you don't know kind of where you land on this, that maybe the Lord will open up your eyes to see some of these things in your life. And then hopefully, the hope is that you would take those gifts that God has given you and actually use them. Use them for the upbuilding of the church. Use them as God has assigned them to you. That's what he calls us to do at the end of verse six or in the middle of, yeah, uh, middle of verse six. Let us use them. God has given you a gift, use it. So the rest of our time, we're gonna just spend, we're just gonna spend walking through this relatively short list of examples Paul does not give us an exhaustive list here. It's not every gift mentioned in the Bible. This is one of, I think, three or four places in the New Testament where the spiritual gifts are laid out. Some of them overlap. A lot of them are unique. This list is mostly unique to, its, to itself. There's a couple of uh, ones mentioned here that are mentioned other places. Um, but most of this is just kind of a unique list. And it gets us a starting point. It's not the end point. It's not all the gifts, but there's some of them. So let's walk through it. Um, and, and hopefully as, as we walk through it, you'll, you'll listen to this in a way that goes, okay, Jesus, would you show me where you've gifted me in this thing, in this church? You've called me here. I'm a part of this. How should I be used? How should I use this gift? And so we won't all have all of these, but all of us will have some of these. Okay, number one. It starts off with the hardest one, okay? So we're going to have to spend some time talking about the first one. It says, verse 6, if prophecy. (laughs) Right out of the gate, Paul, really? You got to start with prophecy. Okay, so what does that mean? This is by far the most controversial, most confusing perhaps in this list, um, but let me just try to help. I think um, there's, there's a variety of ways the church has understood this. Um, 
I'm probably in a middle of the road position. Okay, so I don't believe that the gifts uh, of the New Testament have ceased. Uh, I don't believe that. I think they're still in effect today. I think the church still needs all the gifts that the New Testament talks about. How they're expressed and how they're used, that, that is where I'm a little bit more on the maybe conservative side of things. But, but nonetheless, I do think that the gifts all have a place, and I think prophecy is among them. But, but let me first define this by explaining what it's not. When, when Paul talks about the gift of prophecy, he's not talking about telling the future. That's what we think of when we hear the word prophecy. We immediately think some kind of Christian version of a fortune teller. That's not it. No, um, it's not about speaking the future to someone. That, that has no place. Only God knows the future, and God has chosen to reveal things to the prophets and the apostles as they wrote the scriptures. But we, we got to distinguish here between the gift of prophecy and the office of prophet. I think the office, the position, that's done. We're good. We don't need new things coming from God. And if, if anyone claims to have a new word from God that's not recorded in the Bible, it's a call to run away, okay? Uh, just honestly, that's how cults are formed. Because somebody shows up and says, God told me this. God is done speaking to us in that way. He had the prophets. He had the apostles. Their task is done. So we're not talking about the, the position We're talking about a gift. So it's not to say something new to us. It's it's to tell us, here's what I think it is. This is my definition. And I'm leaning very heavily on some theologians, mainly Wayne Grudem. Um, But I, I think that he's right when he says that prophecy is telling something that God has spontaneously brought to mind that will build somebody up in the faith. It, and it's, here's, here's the critical thing. Anything that someone spontaneously has come to mind that they feel they need to share has to align with what God has already revealed, right? But, but here's the thing. I think we've all experienced this on some level. Have you ever sat through a small group or a Bible study and somebody across the room said something kind of off the cuff and you said, whoa, that really ministered to me? I needed to hear that. It was probably God using that person, more, more than likely unbeknownst to them, but he put something spontaneously in their mind to say, I have, a, I have something I need to give to someone here and I'm going to say it, testing it with the scripture, but saying it and it blesses and ministers to people. That's how I understand it. Now, again, you're going to have a wide range of people in the church that would have differing views. Some will throw this whole thing out the window and say it's worthless, we don't need it, skip over it. And some of them, some folks will say, no, 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 prophecy is like, it's when you're going to get this crazy revelation of something new and I'm not there either. I'm very much in the middle of the road. But I think uh, that that's what it is. It's where God prompts you with something to say and you, have a, and you have an impression on your heart. I need to say this. You may not even know why, but it's there. Now, again, not everybody's going to have that gift. There's a variety of gifts because a variety of people are needed for this. So, but that might be how God uses you. And you may not even realize it, in fact, which is kind of cool. All right, so there's the first one. I, we'll, we'll spend way less time on the rest of them. Um, 
the next one here in verse 7 is service. If service in our serving. So service isn't hard to understand. It's you have a, a, a knack for, an ability for, and a desire to help people meet their needs. You just want to help. You want to help. You want to show up. You don't need the fanfare. You don't need the attention. You just want to show up, do what needs to be done, and, and go on, right? But that's a vital gift to the church, both corporately and on an individual level, because people need help, and they need someone to help serve them. And people that are wired to serve are going to say, absolutely, I'll step in and do this. The church as a, as a group, as we have these, this facility and all the other things that go on and the ministries that we have here, we need people to step in and serve, right? We need someone to love our kids and get in there and teach them the Bible through our children's church. We need people to come in and vacuum floors and clean toilets. We need people who are willing to step in and do what needs to be done. That's, that's just true, right? We get it. Meeting people's needs. And maybe some of you are wired that way and you go, you know what? I can just show up, do my thing. I don't need anybody to know it or have any attention to me at all. All right, third. If, oh, excuse me, the one who teaches in his teaching. Now, we're going to spend a lot more time on teaching one another next week. That's our text from Colossians chapter 3 where Paul actually says, teach one another, teach and admonish one another. So we're going to talk a lot more about this. Um, But there are two forms of teaching. There's formal teaching, which is like what I'm doing, although this is technically preaching, okay? And there's a little difference there. Um, But nonetheless, there's some teaching that happens here. There's teaching that happens in children's ministry. There's teaching that happens in small groups. There's also informal teaching. And this is where somebody can just kind of step into a moment and give some instruction, give some help to someone in an informal conversation where it doesn't have to be this big thing where you schedule a class and you teach some, some series of things, but you're just dealing with people as they have need and you offer instruction because God has given you the ability to do that. This is having the gift to explain and demonstrate scriptural truths to people whether that's in a formal way or an informal way. And, uh, and so preaching has some elements of that, but there's, there's such a need for people in the church to teach one another. And that's what we're going to deal with next week. So we won't belabor it today. All right, third one. This is verse eight. <clears throat> the one who exhorts in his exhortation. So ag- exhorting is not a word we use a whole lot. Um, But exhorting has, again, some overlap in the preaching thing. It also has a lot of overlap in just life. But what exhortation is, is this. It's an encouragement to call people to walk with Jesus um, down a road and help them to grow, right? But exhortation carries with it encouragement. It also carries with it a, a, like, hey, I'm going to help push you in the right direction, And we all need people in our lives who are going to exhort us because we need to be encouraged and we need to be challenged. And exhortation carries with it both of those those things. And and, and I think at different times, there's going to be more heavily on encouragement and on other times might be more heavy on 
on challenge, but we need to exhort one another to push one another in a gentle way towards Christ. And that's what, that's what exhortation is meant to do. All right, next it says this. I love this one. In uh, the one who contributes in generosity. This is, this is really interesting. This is very unique to this passage. You don't see this, this actually brought up in a spiritual gift list anywhere else. Contribution. This is where God says to someone, you know, I've given you the means to meet people's tangible needs and I'm going to let you do that. Right? I want you to do that generously, which means that we give of our money generously. Even if we don't have a lot, if we're called to a spiritual gift of generosity, we don't have to give lots of money, but we need to give freely and generously. This can also be time. If you have time to be with someone and you want to give generously of your time, you need to do that if you have the gift of contribution. The get your talents, your abilities to help people, right? There's a lot of overlap between this and serving too, but contribution is meant to spur us towards generosity. And God has called every Christian to be generous and to give. That's what 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 say, that God loves a cheerful giver. But I think there are people within the church that have a unique uh, call to this and are, and are able to say, you know what, God has given me so much and I just want to give it all away. Give it away. And, and the church needs that in a variety of ways. And so that's one of the gifts. I love that. I love that it's one who contributes. That's a gift. The next one here is the one who leads. The one who leads. Churches need leadership. They do. Any organization, any group of people, they need leaders, they need shepherds, they need people who can give direction to the church so that it can thrive and grow. And God has given to his church leaders and shepherds. And every church should have uh, humble leaders who are willing to, to do whatever Jesus wants them to do, but to do it with a joyful heart, with a zealous heart for Jesus and to help lead the church in that direction. Now, some of you may have a great gift in leadership that you're not utilizing, and maybe we can talk about that someday. So uh, any of these would be great to talk to you about if you'd like. And one more, one more. Mercy. Look at this. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is somebody who, again, as we read through this list, just real quickly, Pretty much all of these, everyone should be doing to some level. But again, there are people who are uniquely wired to do these things in a profound way. All of us should serve. All of us should teach as God gives opportunity. All of us should exhort one another. The Bible calls us to all of this. All of us should give generously. All of us should lead in some capacity or another. And all of us should be merciful, okay? But... The, the uniqueness here is where God has really wired some over others. We're not all going to be good or uniquely gifted in all of these ways. But mercy is simply this. It's showing compassion and kindness to people who, who need it. And who, who would sit here and say, we, we need a bunch of people who are unmerciful, un, <laughs> unkind, uncompassionate. Like that would be a horrible church to go to, right? We should all have a desire to show mercy and compassion and kindness to people. 
But there are some who have this gift that are just like going to come right alongside someone who's suffering and say, I'm, I'm in this with you. I'm going to show you compassion in this. Like that's where life-giving fruit begins to grow in the church. When these gifts and more, there's a lot more that the New Testament talks about. But when these gifts are used, when they're, when they're deployed in the local church, as we depend on Jesus to do them, this is where a gospel culture begins to grow and can really thrive. And, and people will come in here and amazingly, they could walk in here and say, I think Jesus is actually kind of with these people. Isn't that what we want? <laughs> like, don't we want people to come in here and go, I don't know what it is, but it seems like Jesus came to town over here. This is great. That's what we should be pursuing, but we have to pursue it through what Jesus says to us in John 15, that apart from me, you can do nothing. But as you abide in Jesus, his life-giving, grace-giving power is actually given to you as you trust in him. And, and when we fail, we're, we're called back to abide in him again, right? We, this, is a, this is a kind of a deal where we have to continue to go back to him again and again. But here's the key. As we are united to Christ individually, because the individuals make up the whole, right? So individually, as we are united to Christ by faith, because apart from him, we can do nothing. As we unite to Jesus, we're also united to one another. This is what gospel doctrine and gospel culture means. The gospel doctrine of abide in Jesus leads to a unity among his people. And as we're united to one another, God has assigned to each of us by his grace gifts and empowerment to use the gifts that he has given us to, up, to build up the church, to encourage one another, to lift each other up to Jesus. This is not meant to be a one-person show. This is meant to be a, a gathering of believers that we all contribute. And we, we, as we walk with Jesus, we step into those moments that he opens up for us. He may, we may step into moments to give generously as there's a need. We may step into moments to teach as the opportunity arises. We might step into moments to be merciful as God has wired us to do these things and has called us to do it. We should, we should be eager to see Jesus use us in these ways, to build up the church and to continue to see it grow, thrive, and reach people who are desperately in need of Jesus. That should be our heart. That should be our hope. So with that, I hope it encourages you. I hope I don't want to weigh you down with any guilt. I simply want to say, Jesus has called you to abide in him. Start there. And as you do, you will see him use you in fruitfulness as you are connected to the vine. Because apart from him, we can do nothing. So let me pray for us. Father, we are thankful for you. We're thankful that you have given us um, the gifts that you have in this church, that you have called us here, that you have given us skills and talents and abilities and desires and all of it. Lord, we, we pray you would give us the direction as individual people to where you want us to step into these things, how you want us to, 
to, to use these gifts. You want us to use them. Show us how, Lord, we pray. And we pray that the rest of our time as we lift up our voices to you would just be an overflow of joy in Christ as we've abided, as we are abiding in you and finding our fruitfulness in you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.